today we are going to be looking at Psalm 45. We finished uh, the book of Romans here a couple weeks ago. And uh, in spite of all of Ron's pessimism, we finished the book of Romans. And, uh, and uh, then last week I shared with the class uh, uh, some of the plans for the future, some things God has been doing in my own life and uh, directions He's leading me. And so as I shared last week, for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, beginning in late October, I will be moving over to teach another class. Uh, it's uh, a class uh, basically covering the subject of apologetics and the questions that people ask and uh, both that Christians and non-Christians ask about our faith and uh, defending the faith, that whole sort of thing. And I've been asked by uh, the church to take that class. It's a one-year repeating class, so it will be a class that people can uh, come in and and uh, spend a year learning those things and then move on to other things. And they, they've asked me to do, to do that. And I was sharing last week how things God has been doing in my own life, preparing me and directing in that direction. So uh, beginning in late uh, October, uh, I'll be switching over to do that class, which, uh, of course, means that this class now is, uh, uh, needs to be thinking in terms of, of what you want to be doing as a class and how you want to be studying Scripture and that sort of thing. And we'll be talking about those things together some over the next few weeks. Uh, so be praying about that and thinking about that in your own life. What is God doing in your life? What does God want you doing? Uh, and, uh, and how does that dovetail and work together with the class as a whole? So, <clears throat> so I encourage you to be thinking about that. And, uh, and as I mentioned, the, the leadership is eager to be a support and a help in that. Uh, Ryan has offered to come in and spend some time talking over things with you and that sort of thing. So uh, those are things that we'll be pursuing in the weeks ahead in addition to uh, continuing to study the Scripture. And, uh, and uh, as I mentioned last week, what I'd like to do uh, in these weeks that we have left together is to spend some time looking at various uh, passages in Scripture, and we want to start by looking at Psalm 45. We may spend all of our time looking in various psalms. The next psalm I want to tackle will be Psalm 18, uh, <clears throat> but I'm not going to hand out a study sheet for that because we won't be doing that next week. Uh, as I mentioned last week, doing Psalm 45, I wasn't sure how long it would take, but the more time I uh, spent studying the passage, uh, I thought it'd be good if we took uh, two weeks rather than one week to try to cover Psalm 45. It really breaks into two very distinct sections, and so it's very natural to take it in two parts. So that's what I would like to do. Uh, it is, as I mentioned last week, a psalm that, uh, that I've always particularly enjoyed. Uh, it's a song of praise. It's a song of worship. Uh, it is, a, as you'll notice, the uh, title uh, at the beginning. Uh, uh, there's the title that's uh, put there by the translators. In my translation, it calls it a song celebrating the king's marriage. But under that, in most translations, you'll have a smaller title, uh, more descriptive title. It says for the choir director, uh, according to the Shashenin or something like that. However, you pronounce that word. 
uh, a mascot of the sons of Korah, Song of Love. And that particular title was uh, probably added by uh, uh, some of the uh, Jewish scholars many, many, many centuries ago uh, has been associated with this psalm uh, for, uh, for actually for millennia. And so that really, uh, although that the title at the beginning of a psalm is not, we don't normally think of that as being inspired because it was apparently added sometime or attached to the psalm sometime afterwards. It does convey to us what the Jewish uh, scholars, what the Jews believed this psalm was really about and who wrote it and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, so we have this title and you'll notice that he calls it a mascal of the sons of Korah, uh, who were musicians who uh, ministered in ancient Israel. And he calls it a song of love. And, uh, and as you'll see, that's precisely what it is. Let's read the psalm. And then I want to talk a little bit about, about how we approach the Psalms, how we uh, try to understand the Psalms, and, and then more specifically about this particular Psalm. He says, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to remember, be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Well, uh, as we approach the Psalms, it's important to keep certain things in mind. Uh, scripture is... Uh, 
Scripture is made up of a number of different what we call genre, okay? And, uh, and when we're trying to understand a passage of Scripture, it's very important to approach it uh, in a way that we are trying to understand it in the context of the genre it's written in. Genre is spelled G-E-N-R-E, genre, okay? Uh, can anybody tell me what genre is? Pardon? It's a type, okay? And so we have all different types of Scripture. We have different genres of Scripture. Uh, so, for example, one genre we have is, is what we call history or narrative. What would be some examples of the historical or narrative genre of Scripture? The Kings, okay? The Book of Kings, the Book of Genesis, uh, uh, the Book of Acts, okay? These are all... Uh, these are all historical or narrative genre. And then we have another genre, and it's called law. What would be an example of that? Leviticus. Okay, Leviticus would be a great example. Okay, uh, And uh, then we have, uh, we have uh, a genre of prophecy, okay, uh, or apocalyptic literature. What would be an example of that? Revelation, Isaiah, Micah, etc., etc., etc. Okay, uh, we have uh, a wisdom. We have the wisdom genre. What would be an example of that? Proverbs. Proverbs. Okay, the book of Proverbs is a classic example. Uh, we have uh, poetic genre. What would be an example of that? Psalms, okay. The Psalms are are largely poetry. Uh, in fact, most of them are written as Psalms. We call the whole uh, book of Psalms. Sometimes it's referred to as the Psalter. Okay, uh, it describes this whole kind of hymn book of 150 songs or psalms uh, that uh, that were written. Uh, we have the the we have a genre we call gospels. We really classify the gospels in a genre by themselves, aside from history, because they really have. Uh, they're not strictly history. They have uh, they have a little bit different element to them, and so they kind of have a classification. By so we have these different genre of scripture, and when you approach a passage of scripture and study it, you have to keep in mind uh, what its genre is, what type of scripture it is, uh, in order to understand. So, for example, if I'm studying a story, uh, an account from the book of Genesis. Uh, or if I'm studying a, a section, a chapter in the book of Romans, that's another genre, the epistles or what we call the didactic, the teaching genre. Okay, so if I'm looking at a story in Genesis or if I'm looking at a passage in Romans or if I am looking at a, as we're going to do today, we're going to look at a psalm, I'm looking at a psalm, I have to approach them differently. Because the way the author writes, his intention, his purpose, and the techniques he uses to convey the things he wants to convey are different. And this is particularly true when we engage with, with uh, poetic literature. Okay, uh, Because with poetic literature, we encounter a number of different devices or techniques that the author or the poet is using. Uh, to convey the thoughts he's trying to convey that we might not normally encounter in other types of literature. So what would be some of the devices that we might encounter 
in poetry uh, that we might not probably wouldn't encounter, for example, in narrative or history or didactic type literature. Hyperbole. Okay. Hyperbole. hyperbole. And what is hyperbole? Well, it's when you exaggerate in order to make your point. Okay. I always do that. Uh, you always do that. There you go. There's an example. Okay. I never do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, great. That's a great example. So, hyperbole is one. What's another uh, device? going to test you on how, what you remember from your metaphors. ancient English. Pardon? Metaphors. metaphors. Okay. So, you have, what's a metaphor? Okay. Okay. So, uh, uh, so uh, uh, I, I think a one a one metaphor in scripture. I don't remember exactly where it comes from. But he talks about the life of the life of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Okay. Actually, that's not technically a set of metaphor. That's a, what we call a simile because it uses the word like. But but it's that idea of the sun rising is a kind of a metaphor for the life of the righteous. Or in that particular case, it's expressed as a simile, which is a which is another device that's used in poetry. Sometimes used in other aspects of literature. So we encounter all these various techniques. There's what we call parallelisms, okay? And a parallelism is where you you line two things up side by side uh, so that you can kind of see the comparison or the contrast between those two things, okay? Uh, There's uh, personification. Uh, So you'll uh, you'll take something and it will... Uh, you may you may uh, use an object. Uh, uh, for example, we'll talk about arrows today in this passage today. Well, the arrows uh, may actually be a personification. They actually represent human beings, or they may, in the context of the passage we're looking at today. There's imagery. There's meter. There's all these different elements that you encounter in poetry that you don't encounter in ordinary prose or in narrative or history or or typically you don't encounter nearly as much in didactic or the epistles, that sort of thing. So these things, need, we need to keep these things in mind as we're studying a psalm, as we're looking at a psalm, because if you just strictly take a psalm and, uh, and you eliminate consideration of all these things and you forget about the use of metaphors and simile and, and you take it very literally, you're going to miss the psalmist's point and you're going to misunderstand the passage, okay? So these are some of the things that we need to keep in mind as we, uh, as we approach a psalm. Now this particular psalm, as I mentioned, at the, the, the title that the translators in my uh, translation have given it is they call it a song celebrating the king's marriage. And as we begin the psalm, as we look at the first half of the psalm or so, it's not really clear that that's what's going on. But if you understand Hebrew weddings, and as you look at the latter part of the psalm, it becomes very clear that this is, in fact, <clears throat> what is happening. Uh, uh, Jewish weddings, uh, in, particularly in ancient times, are in some ways similar to our weddings today, but in other ways are very different uh, from our weddings today. And we'll talk more about this next week. But one of the things that's uh, characteristic of, uh, of, a, of a Hebrew wedding, particularly of an ancient Hebrew wedding, was the employment of musicians and choirs and singers who would sing the praise of the of the two people, the two parties uh, of the wedding, the the groom uh, and the bride. Okay, and so there would be 
uh, singers who would sing about the the groom, the groom and 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 all of his attributes and all of his qualities, and they'd sing. You know, man, maybe we ought to do that today. Nowadays, we just walk the groom in and we stand him up there, you know. But maybe we ought to have somebody get up and sing a solo of praise uh, for the groom. Okay, they did that in ancient times. Okay. And uh, we kind of do a little bit of that with the with the, with the bride as she comes in, and we have this procession, and there's all this, you know, the the attendants and the flowers and the flower girls and the petals strewn, and uh, you know, and 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 then she's brought down, and 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 we all stand and we honor her. Well, uh, in Jewish weddings, there was something very similar to that, but in addition, they would have these singers or these choirs that would sing, and they would sing praise to the bride or praise about the bride, okay? And this is what this psalm is. This psalm is a song of praise in which uh, the uh, the groom is first praised in the first... Uh, well, you have an introduction in verse 1 and in verses 2 through 9, you have the praise of the groom, okay? And then beginning in verse 10, it switches over and you have the the praise of the of the bride and uh, the <clears throat> the woman who is to become the queen, because in this case the groom is a king. Okay, and uh, in, uh, in in of course in in uh, in, it, in ancient Israel as as even today we have in any kingdom when the king gets married it's a big deal. You know we we think of the the weddings in uh, in uh, Great Britain when the when the prince gets married, okay, they have these you know these huge celebrations and parades and all this majestic music and all. Well, you have the same kind of thing going on in Israel, where you have the king getting married, and this is a psalm that was presumably written uh, to celebrate some king's marriage. We don't know what king it was. It could have been Solomon. Uh, it could have been any number. We really don't know. Okay, but what we have to realize about the wedding of uh, the marriage of a king in Israel, it was it was more than just the wedding of a king. Okay, uh, it was because the the king getting married to his bride in ancient Israel was not simply a wedding of the king marrying his future queen. But it was a picture. It was a picture of of the ultimate eventual union of God with his people. Okay. So when you had a king getting married, there was this all this 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 level of celebration on the human level, but there was this spiritual significance to it as well. Okay. And uh and so the, the psalmist here, he sets out and he begins to write or express this, write this song, this poem about the king's wedding. But he has in his mind what this wedding actually ultimately represents. And so what happens with the psalmist here is his language very quickly escalates. And he begins to say the kinds of things that you would never say about any human being. Okay? So, for example, you'll notice in verse 2, he says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Okay? So, he's, 
he's beginning right off the bat there at the beginning of verse two. He's beginning to elevate his 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 uh, terminology. He's beginning to elevate his expression to to something that that pictures this king as someone particularly special. He says in verse three, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. Okay, that's a term we normally associate with whom? With God, okay? Uh, in verse 6, notice what he says. Your throne, O God, is forever. Now, there he gets just very blatant about it, okay? So, it, so what's happened here is the psalmist, as he's thinking about this wedding of the king, he's thinking about this deeper significance, this deeper level, uh, the deeper message of the king's marriage. And what this has happened is, is that he's become overwhelmed with this thought, this idea of the ultimate union of God with His people. This ultimate wedding. We can think of the marriage supper of the Lamb, if you will. Okay? So the passage then becomes, in a very clear sense, messianic. It, become, it becomes clear that, that the one who ultimately the Holy Spirit is communicating to us about here in, the, in, in this psalm, in this song of praise, is really, uh, is, is really an expression of praise for the Messiah and for the Messiah's bride. Okay? And this is how many, um, uh, most of the ancient Jewish scholars understood the psalm. They understood it as messianic. The early Christian fathers understood the psalm to be messianic. Uh, for example, uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, as he sets out in the book of Hebrews, and you remember the, the point of the book of Hebrews is to, is to communicate, to illustrate the superiority of Jesus Christ to everything that went before him. Okay? So he's superior to the angels, he's superior to Moses, etc., etc., etc. And the idea is to communicate the superiority of Christ. And, and very early. In, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews goes back in his communication of the superiority of Christ. He goes back and he quotes from Psalm 45 as evidence. In two different places, he quotes from Psalm 45 to communicate uh, some things about the Messiah. So this passage really is messianic. And so as we look at it, as we think about it today and next week, I want to think about it in those terms. I want to contemplate what this passage is telling us about our Savior. What this passage is telling us about our Lord Jesus. Okay? Hey, yeah? Let me ask a literary question. Uh, and when they translated Psalms, did the translation greatly change the structure of the Psalms? And did the Psalms uh, in that day uh, rhyme? I don't know the answer to your last question there about rhyming. There is there is very clearly meter involved and and uh, and uh, stanzas and that sort of thing, and uh, and uh, in the translation of it we lose a great deal of that. Yes. So to really pick a lot of that stuff up, you need to read it in Hebrew. So if you'll take the next year and learn Hebrew for us, then you. You're assuming that I don't know Hebrew. You're right. I did assume that. I apologize. Do you know Hebrew, Ron? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> next, by next year at this time, he'll be. So, so there is a lot that we are at a disadvantage at if we don't read Hebrew. So, 
uh, as to the question of rhyme, I don't know the answer to that question. I was actually wondering about that question myself this morning, and I don't know the answer to that question. Somebody obviously does. Uh, but there are uh, but there are things that you see in Hebrew, the similarity of words and that sort of thing that you pick up when you read in the Hebrew that we don't see in our English translations. You'll notice in most translations uh, they've tried to put it in kind of a verse form, the way it is written in Hebrew. Uh, so mine is broken down into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stanzas. Uh, but uh, uh, we still we lose a lot in the in the translation to answer your question. Uh, so he starts out now in verse one, and this is just kind of his introduction. And usually in an introduction, you tell people what you're going to talk about, right? Okay. Uh, and, and he kind of does that. But his introduction in verse 1 is really more just an expression of how he feels about what he's going to talk about. Okay. So here we have the psalmist and he's contemplating this great king. And he's contemplating the, the marriage of the great king to his bride who we, of course, now know to be his people, which includes, uh, in the Old Testament, includes Israel and, 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 and now includes the church. So it's all the righteous. It's the union of, it's the, union of, the, of the bride, the great king, to his, to his bride, to his beautiful bride. And we're going to talk next week about the bride. Because as you saw, the passage breaks down into two pretty distinct sections. One is talking about the king, and then the second is talking about the bride, the queen. But, but he's contemplating this. And as he's contemplating, as he's thinking about this, he just gets blown away. <laughs> we, could, we, we could translate this verse in the vernacular of today, and we could say, I'm blown away. <laughs> okay? He says, my heart overflows with a good thing. As he's just thinking about the greatness of his king. It fills his heart up to overflowing. Is your heart ever full to overflowing? You know, we get we get pretty excited about some things in life, don't we? You know, oh you won the what was it, the Sugar Bowl last year? There were a lot of people whose hearts were overflowing. We'll see if that continues <laughs> starting next week, right? Uh, uh, we, we get really excited and our hearts overflow if one of our children happens to do really well at something or excel at something. Uh, it just fills our hearts up and it, and it overflows. And when your heart overflows, what happens? You experience joy, yeah. You talk about it. You share it. You you want to talk to somebody. So, and you know, if something's happened in your life, you've gotten a great promotion or whatever, and your heart is filled with gratitude and happiness and blessedness, uh, you you want to tell somebody about it. Well, that's what the psalmist is confronting. He's been thinking about the wedding of the king and. And, and whoever the king was, but now he's, he's thinking far more deeply, he's thinking far more spiritually, and it's filled himself up. He's filled himself up, and he's just got to do something with 
what he's thought about. I wonder how many times in our lives, how often does it happen in our lives, that our meditations upon our Lord actually fill our hearts up to overflowing to where we've got to talk about it. Or we can't contain it anymore. You know what happens when you put the you know, you put the kettle on the stove, you know, and you put the potatoes in it because you're going to make whatever you're going to make, you know, and you crank the heat and you forget about it and you walk into the other room, you know, and you come back a little bit later and what's happening? There's just water all over everything. You know, water all over the stove. Potato water everywhere, you know, okay. You know how I know about this, right? Uh, well, you know, what <laughs> what would what would happen if 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 we actually took the time in our lives to contemplate this great God? Did you ever find yourself in that place? Did you ever find yourself having contemplated the greatness of God? You know, so oftentimes our spirituality is involved involves other things, and they're important things we think about, our spiritual responsibilities, our spiritual duties, and this truth and that truth. But how often do we take time just to think about God? And just to tell Him how cool we think He really is. I find that in my devotional times, and I like to walk, uh, uh, I like to... Uh, when I'm praying, I like to walk and pray. So I'll go out in the mornings and I'll walk and I'll pray. And and I find that that invariably when I go out to pray in the morning, having read the scripture or whatever, and then I go for a walk to pray in the morning, invariably I start thinking about all the things I want God to do, right? I need God to deal with this situation and I want God to do that. And I start praying about all these things. So I have to discipline myself sometimes when I walk out the door to say, this morning, all I'm going to do is talk to God about Him. Okay? I have all these other issues, and He cares about them. He's concerned about them. Uh, they are burdens to me, and I am concerned about them. But they will wait till tomorrow. And today, I'm just going to talk to God about God. And almost without fail, that's a really rich time. You know, there's sometimes when that's a struggle. There's sometimes when I don't want to think about God. You know, but 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 oftentimes, usually, those are times that are really rich. And I come back and I go, okay, I can face today because I know God, <laughs> and He's really neat. And so the psalmist is thinking about God. He's contemplating God. And he's contemplating not just God in the abstract sense, but he's, but he's thinking about what God is like and he's thinking about God's union with his people and what that's going to do and what that's going to be like. Okay. So he's thinking, to use a theological term, he's thinking in one sense eschatologically. He's thinking about the end times. He's thinking about the future. He's thinking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, although they didn't use that term back then. Okay, But that's what he's thinking about. But, but because this is a psalm, uh, he's not just thinking only about that. 
he's he's thinking about God in kind of a in a more general sense too about what God is about right now, what God is doing right now. So he's thinking about all those things. And it has just filled him, he says, to overflowing. And and so he says, I address my verses to the king. The verses being a reference to this song <laughs> that he's going to write. Okay. And and he says uh he says, I address my verses to the king. And indeed, the first half of the psalm is addressed directly to the king. Okay, And he talks to the king about what the king's doing, what the king's like. Uh, he talks to the king about what he wants the king to do. Uh, he's urging the king to take action, etc., uh, etc. Et so, uh, so, as he contemplates this great God, and he is filled with this sense of wonder and awe at God, about God. And it bubbles over so that he wants to talk about it. The first person he wants to talk to about it is who? God. I address my verses to the king. I, You know, I'm just... I'm filled up. I've got something I want to say and I want to say it to God. We have this kind of perverse concept about praise that sometimes contaminates our approach to praise. And we just, we think God is an egomaniac. You know, He's just out there and he's just craving all of our praise and worship because he's on such a head trip. But that's not what's going on here at all. When someone whom you really love and you really appreciate and you really value, when they come to you, when they sit down with you and they start telling you the things about yourself they really like. That's not a head trip, right? That's just a that's just a an expression of their love, and you receive it as their love. Nobody else in the world may think of you that way, but this person thinks of you that way, and it it creates a bond. It creates a union together that you wouldn't have otherwise. We cannot really experience the union and the oneness with God that, that we're created to experience until we can get to the point where we can really praise Him, where we can really tell Him what we think about Him that's really neat, that's really glorious. Okay? And I'm sure she does. In your case, it does go to your head, but other than, but no, I'm sure it doesn't. But but what it does when somebody tells you those things is it tends to humble you. It tends to make you feel uh, awestruck that anybody would think of you that way, right? Well, so he's going to address his verses. He says to the king, and eventually he'll address some verses also to the bride, and then he'll come back. 
with a conclusion at the end where he, re, he addresses the king again. He says, and then he says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I love that expression. That's one of the reasons I love this song because I just love that expression. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Okay. Uh, and I think of that in a couple ways, but uh, 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 the question is, who is the ready writer? Well, uh, when I read the passage, uh, sometimes I think the Holy Spirit is the ready writer. The Holy Spirit wants to record this stuff for us. Okay, so he wants he wants the psalmist to put this stuff down for us to contemplate and us to think about. So the excuse me, the Holy Spirit is the ready writer, and his tongue, the psalmist's tongue, is a pen in the hand of the ready writer. See, this is this is metaphor again. This is where we're using metaphor. This is you know, so his tongue's not literally a pen. But it's, it's a metaphor to give us the picture of there's a, there's a pen there, uh, a pen there on the, on, the, on the desk. And you have something you really, you know, some thoughts come to your mind. You ever, you ever have that where just you get this thought and you know if you don't get it written down, you're going to lose it, you know? And there's a pen there, so what do you do? You just grab that pen right away and you, write, you scribble it down. If you're like me, you scribble it. You know, if you're like my wife, it comes out and all this beautiful handwriting. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes my wife will send a note to somebody by me, and uh, the first thing they always say is, "What beautiful handwriting!" Well, mine's not that way, as you all know, but, but, uh, but it's the idea that there's a pen there, and and there's a writer who's so eager to write something down, so they grab that pen, and he says, he says, "My tongue is the pen." of a ready writer and the ready writer could be the Holy Spirit as I said. The other the other idea of course or thought is that, that he is the ready writer. Because that's the idea we've already gotten, right? His heart is overflowing with a good thing. He's got something he needs to say. I gotta get you know I gotta get to the keyboard. I gotta get it written down, you know. So, you know, again in the vernacular of today we might say, My tongue is the keyboard of a ready writer. Okay. But but the idea is there's something's got to be said. It's got to be said now. And I want to say it. And that's what the psalmist is thinking. And so then he starts in verse 2. And, and, uh, and he begins to describe the king to himself. I mean, to the king. Uh, he's addressing the king. He says, you, he says, are fairer then the sons of men, you grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So, uh, Spurgeon makes a point here that in in the Hebrew there, the, the where it's translated in our translation or my translation translated, you are fair. The word is beautiful, beautiful. Said twice. Okay. In Hebrew, uh, they didn't have exclamation points. We have exclamation points you know, nowadays. So if we want to, ex- you know, if we want to really emphasize something, we slap an exclamation point on there. If we really, really want to emphasize it, we slap a couple exclamation points on it, right? And then there are the people on Facebook who put 300 exclamation points, you know, and I'm going, okay, that's overdoing a little bit. I can only take so much of your exclamation. Okay, but in Hebrew, they didn't have that. So what they had was repetition. They would repeat things. Okay. And so, for example, uh, Isaiah... When he's speaking of the holiness of God, he says it three times. Holy, holy, holy. Okay? The idea is, is just the, 
the excess of holiness, the extreme of holiness. Okay, so it's it's to emphasize the holiness of God. Okay, so uh, so in in uh, in repeating it here in the Hebrew, uh, the idea is communicating how beautiful He is. Now we don't talk about guys that way nowadays, do we? <laughs> you know, I don't want anybody saying I'm beautiful, and I don't think there's any danger of that. <laughs> but you know, you can say I'm handsome, but I don't want you saying I'm. Be-. We don't talk that way today. But they did back then. And and one of the things that was stressed about. Uh, Saul, when he became king, was what? His physical attributes. Head and shoulders about above every man in Israel. And the things that were stressed about David when he became king is, is how his features were beautiful. He was, he was ruddy and very beautiful, very attractive young man, apparently, uh, when he became king. And, and it's saying this about the Lord, that he is, he is fair, he's beautiful, he's beautiful, okay? And so, uh, so there's this emphasis on his, his beauty. And when I think about that, I think, well, that's sure different than the way he's described in his first advent, isn't it? Remember how Isaiah says of him there, he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. And early in the, in, the, in, the, in the chapter right before that in Isaiah, he says his, his image, his visage was marred more than any man. Speaking of, uh, of course, the, the, how he was brutalized before his crucifixion. So we don't think of Jesus particularly as beautiful in his first advent. But when he returns... He is going to be just beautiful to behold. Just beautiful to look on. And not only that, but he says, grace is poured upon his lips. So not only is he beautiful to look at, attractive to look at, but his speech is full of grace. It'll just be a pleasure to hear him speak. Remember the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there at the end of Matthew chapter 7. It says, after he finished, it says, the people, were, the people marveled. So he says, because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. Well, what does that mean? Well, when the scribes taught... They always, always cited all their authorities. It's like, for those of you who are familiar with academic writing, okay? Somebody sits, uh, of an ac- uh, academician sits down to write a book or to write a paper or whatever. Every point they make, what do they do? Yeah, they cite it. They go, this is my idea. This is so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And so they put all these footnotes in and they put all these citations in. And say, so they, so, and, 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 and if, you're a, if you're a student, if you're an uh, undergraduate or a graduate or even a doctoral student and you're writing like your thesis, you can't just go out there and just say, this is the way it is. Believe me. You can't do that. Okay. You have to say, 
this is the way it is because so and so and so and so and so. And you can reach some conclusions, but they have to be based upon all these other things that everybody else said. Okay? Well, that's the way it was in ancient Israel, only more so. Okay? So you have these scribes, and every time they taught, they would say such and such, or so and so said thus and so, and so and so said thus and so, and so and so said. And they had all this, this stuff that they'd learned from the past. But when you read the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus do? I say unto you, I say unto you, I say unto you. <laughs> and then once in a while, he'll quote the scriptures themselves, which is another way of saying, I say unto you. Okay. And when he got done, the people went, well, that was different. Because he spoke to us as if the authority was internal. He spoke to us as one having authority and not as the scribes. This guy really teaches different. And then there was another incident John records in John chapter 7 and the Jewish leaders, they were out to get Jesus. And so they got some of their henchmen and they sent him off. They sent their henchmen off to, uh, to uh, interrogate Jesus and to corner him and then to eventually, uh, essentially arrest him and bring him to the authorities. Okay? So they sent, their, they sent their henchmen off to get Jesus and they went over there uh, and uh, to confront Jesus and and when they came back they came back empty handed <laughs> there's no Jesus and the Jewish leaders go where is he and their answer was well he doesn't teach like any other man his words are different when Jesus speaks it's just different And, and the psalmist here says his words are they're, they're just full of grace. Now, there's, there's more to Christ's words than that. But what the psalmist is emphasizing here in this verse is his beauty and his graciousness. Now, in our culture today, we don't normally associate those things with manliness, do we? Yeah. We we don't associate those things with men. You know, men to us are you know like Duck Dynasty guys. You know, <laughs> you know they're kind of rough, they're coarse, you know, etc. I enjoy Duck Dynasty, you know, and I enjoy the humor and that sort of thing. But it's that kind of rough, you know, coarse type of speech, etc., etc., etc. But that's not how Jesus is portrayed here. He's portrayed as this beautiful. This beautiful person and whose, whose lips are just dripping with grace. Grace is poured out upon thy lips. And he says, therefore, God, thy God, has blessed thee forever. Or God has blessed thee forever. And, and so the idea is, as, as his heavenly Father looks on him, that's the way he views him. He views him as beautiful. He views him as... As, as having this gracious speech. And it just makes God the Father just want to pour goodies on him. <laughs> to bless him. Forever. <laughs> it's really fun sometimes to think about that relationship between the Father and the Son. It's such a beautiful thing. How they love one another. How they delight in one another. 
And Jesus tells us in his prayer in John 17, we learn he wants to bring us into that. <laughs> he wants us to get us in the middle of that relationship between him and the Father. And it's such a beautiful thing. And so the Father, he looks upon the Son who is so, is so beautiful and is so gracious and, and he just blesses. Remember the word blessed means to be happy or to make happy. Okay, And so the Father just wants to bless the Son. But Jesus is the perfect man. So we have we have men today who are beautiful, if we can use that term. And we have men today whose lips are filled with grace. There are some like that, right? Maybe you know some. But when someone's like that, we don't, we don't very often think of them as being the kind of guy who's going to go to war and cut off people's heads. <laughs> right? But in the next verse, we get the other side of Jesus. He says, Gird your sword off on your thigh, O mighty one. And in your splendor and in your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. And so now we get this other picture of Jesus because He is the perfect man. He is not simply lowly Jesus, meek and mild. He is that. But he's also this valiant warrior. This majestic, splendid warrior. And the psalmist is longing to see the, see the son of this son of David, this, this ultimate king. He is longing to see him. He's urging him to gird his sword on his thigh to get ready for battle and to do it with that splendor and that majesty which is His. And then He says to, uh, in your majesty, ride on victoriously. He's, he's envisioning as He's thinking about this Son of David, this great King, the ultimate King. He's thinking about that, that time when Christ will will enter into His chariot and ride out in His chariot with all of His splendor and all of His majesty and His sword in His hand. He talks about His sword and then He goes on in the next verse and He talks about His arrows. Doesn't he? He's talking about His weapons. Okay? And he's going, to go toward, he's going to go out with His sword and He says, let your right hand teach you awesome things. What is He talking about there? What's he saying? He's saying, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Swordsmanship. Pardon? Swordsmanship. Swordsmanship. Yeah. You know, we, we probably don't think about this nowadays because, you know, we don't do war this way. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, if you watch the old movies or you watch the movies about combat in ancient days, it's pretty scary stuff, you know. Uh, I was a soldier in our generation, okay? 
And uh, I fortunately never had to go to war, uh, but it was a very distinct possibility because I was a soldier during the Vietnam conflict. Fortunately, I never had to go to Vietnam, but but it was scary enough thinking about it, thinking that I was going to be standing, you know, so far apart, you know, and shooting a gun, you know. But there was that part in basic training where you put the bayonet on the front of, you know, on the end of the rifle and you practice, you know, actually stabbing the bayonet into people, you know. Well, that I didn't really enjoy that part, you know. <laughs> I didn't mind target practice, but bayonet practice, that was a different thing. Because I'm thinking, I never want to be in a situation where I have to put the bayonet on my, on my weapon, you know. I, I never want to have to do that, you know, because that's eye-to-eye contact, you know. I, I, you know. So there's this, you know, so there's this eye-to-eye contact, and the idea is the guy's got his sword in his hand. Every time he uses it successfully, something terrible happens. All right? Every time he uses it, something terrible happens. But what we're envisioning here is the Lord's enemies. And... And he's envisioning the king going forth in his majesty in his chariot riding and with his right hand doing these terrible things. Destroying his enemies. That's what he means when he says, let your right hand teach you awesome things. You want to use that sword and you want to do some terrible stuff with that to your enemies. There's a lot of enemies out there. Christ has a lot of enemies. And they say some really nasty stuff about it. In preparation for this upcoming class uh, that I'm going to be teaching starting this fall, uh, I've had to force myself to read some of the junk that's out there. You know, uh, the so-called four horsemen, uh, the four horsemen of the new atheism, you know, uh, Dawkins, Dennett, Kitchens, those kind of guys. They say some really nasty stuff about the Lord. There's a lot of people out there that hate the Lord. Well, I think it's kind of like in verse number five, instead of really talking about the sword, it refers to the arrows. Yeah. Typically, arrows in the Scripture, arrows metaphorically for ideas and thoughts. In the, uh, it looks like, especially in the last part of chapter 5, these arrows are in the hearts of the king's enemies. You're getting ahead of me. I'm <laughs> <laughs> He's stealing my thunder. Can you, you saw that guy do that right, right in front of your eyes. He stole my thunder. <laughs> We're getting to that. <laughs> so, so he has, he has this sword, and the sword, he's with his sword, he's teaching himself awesome things, he says. And then he goes on to verse 5. And he says, Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. The arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Now, uh, why does an arrow need to be sharp? To penetrate. Okay. Well, you know, I kind of think if I... If I had a, an arrow shaft, you know, with the feathers and everything, but just didn't have the head on it, just the shaft, and I had a good, a decent bow, and I pulled it back and shot it at you. Well, <laughs> yeah, but I think it'd probably go in. 
you know. But you got to think, you know, these people they don't, you know, they don't go out there to battle bare-chested, do they? They wear heavy leather or they wear armor, they have shields, they have those sorts of things. So you got to put something sharp on the front of that arrow that will penetrate, that will go through all the defenses and ultimately penetrate the heart. Right? And uh, and so he says he says concerning the king, his arrows are like this. And and uh, and uh, uh, Milford brought up the question: What what do the arrows represent? Well, arrows uh, in scripture uh, actually represent uh, several different things, but uh, typically they represent. Uh, uh, excuse me. Let me get caught up here in my notes here. Uh, Typically, they, they represent those devices which are used to subdue or destroy an enemy, right? And, uh, and sometimes in Scripture, they're used in reference to words. Words are called arrows, okay? Uh, almost always, though, when, or maybe even always, whenever arrows are a metaphor for words in Scripture, it's always referred or seems to me at least always to refer to the wicked's use of words. Okay, so sometimes the psalmist or others will talk about how the wicked shoot their arrows at me. Okay, and it's the words that they use uh, to to shoot. But 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 at any rate, it, it could be a reference to words. But what's interesting to me is there are several places in Scripture where arrows represent people. So, for example. The psalmist at one point says, uh, uh, says about uh, the uh, person who has many children. What does he say? His quiver is full of them. They're like they're arrows and he shoots them out into the world. OK, so uh, so arrows are like children. OK, or children are like arrows, I should say. In another place, the children of Israel are referred to as God's arrow. OK, uh, uh, I believe it's Isaiah refers to. Himself as God's arrow. Okay, so sometimes arrows are a reference to people. Uh, sometimes they are a reference to just the things that God does to subdue His enemies. So, for example, famine is one case referred to as God's arrow that He sends against uh, one of the nations that are enemies of Israel, and so He sends His arrow of famine. Okay, so. So it could represent any number of things. And, and here, again, this is poetry, so we don't have to get real literal with this. What we just understand is that when, when, when this great king goes to war, his weapons are effective. So his right hand with his sword is teaching him awesome things. His arrows are in the heart of his enemies. They are falling before him. So the picture we get is that the psalmist is contemplating this great day when Christ will be victorious and when his enemies will be subdued and when his weapons, whatever those weapons are, whether they are his word, whether they are his people whom he uses, uh, whether they are uh, plagues and famines or whatever they are, when they will subdue people. Now, there's two ways that God's enemies can be subdued. Because you were God's enemy once. And so was I. Right? 
and the arrow of God's Word or the sword of God's Word penetrated your life, right? And you were saved. So, yes, exactly. And so, one way that God's enemies are subdued is they are brought to repentance. But of course, the other way is if they do not repent, they are brought to judgment. So the picture we get of this great king is that he is not only beautiful and his words full of grace, but he's also this majestic, splendid warrior who goes out and defeats his enemies and brings his enemies into subjection. Well, then he goes on and he talks about the king's throne. And he says, Your throne, O God, and there notice he refers to him here as God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And so he describes then this, the throne of God. As the psalmist thinks about this great king and he thinks about his throne, what thrills him to overflowing, what makes his tongue want to write, okay, is the thought that Christ's throne, the scepter of Christ's rule is a scepter of uprightness. You know, the scepter was that, you know, very fancy rod or stick or whatever you know what to call it, you know, and, and it's all embellished with gold and whatever. But it is the symbol of his authority. So the king when he has the scepter, it's it represents his authority to rule. And the 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 authority that our Lord Jesus has to rule is his uprightness. That he loves righteousness and that he hates wickedness. And because he loves righteousness and because he hates wickedness, he has been, the scepter has been placed in his hand. It is his right to rule. You know, we, we don't think in terms of kings today, do we? We think in terms of people that we elect to rule over us, okay? And we choose to rule over us. And, 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 uh, so, one party gets together and they get enough people and they get their person in, in, in power. And, and what happens? The people who didn't get their person in power spend the next four years complaining about how the guy who's in power is unjust, right? And then the tables turn and the other party gets their person in and then the tables turn and the other people complain. Well, this guy's unjust, you know. He's not righteous, okay? These are the complaints we hear. There will be no such complaints about Jesus. Every mouth will be stopped. And the reason will be because he's completely upright. He's completely just. He's completely righteous. And so he has the scepter and it says because he is such that the Father has anointed him his God has anointed him with the oil of joy above his fellows more than anybody else. Jesus is joyful. Again, that's a stark contrast, isn't it? For we were acquainted with him. He says, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
right? But that's his earthly sojourn. But but at the at the marriage of the Lamb, what we're going to see is one who has more joy than all of us put together. In fact, it was for that joy, it says, that he endured the cross and suffered the shame for the joy that was set before him. And so he is this joyous Christ. He's anointed with joy as oil and this oil uh, in the psalmist, uh, psalm it talks about how the oil comes down on the head and flows through the, you know, we anoint people today, we put a little oil on our finger and we go, you know, and we say they're anointed. That's not how they did it, folks. They took a whole bucket of oil and they just poured it on them. And it just, it ran down over their hair, it ran through their beard, it ran over their clothes. There's this beautiful smell and stuff, okay? And so he says, all his garments are fragrant with aloe and and uh, with myrrh and aloe and cassia. So this beautiful aroma. And then he says, out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. So the picture there is the blessing of the Father on the Son. The blessing of the Father on this great King. Is that his, his, his whole environment, his whole presence is one of of this beautiful aroma and of this gorgeous palace, ivory palace. Remember the hymn, Out of Ivory Palaces into a World of Woe? Yeah, remember that? Well, that's where that comes from, okay? It's, so it's the ivory palaces and then string. I can tell you about stringed instruments. <laughs> I'm experienced when it comes to string instruments. I can't play a note. But I got three daughters and a son that can all play stringed instruments, you know. Uh, so I know about stringed instruments, and sometimes that music gets just unbelievably beautiful. And it makes you glad. And this is the eternal blessing that is upon the Son, because the Father is so pleased in him. And so he has this he has this this blessing. And again, this is all metaphor, folks. It's not that when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to smell pretty. It's all, it's, this is poetry. So the idea is to convey to us the pleasantness, the blessedness of our Savior. His goodness and, and, the, and, the, and the preciousness and the sweetness and the, and the beauty and the gladness of His presence and what where he lives and what he lives in and what he experiences and what he is bringing us to because, as we're going to see next week, we are his bride. So we're going to get to be a part of this. Which incidentally brings up the question, finally, or the issue of the king's court. And the king's court, we discover, he says that among his... Uh, he says, a king's daughters are among your noble ladies. So here we have this great king, and he has these noble ladies. They are his attendants. And where do they come from? Other kings. They're king's daughters. King of kings. And Lord of lords. And all the kings of the world will do him homage. And when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of just ordinary folks like you and I. 
But we're going to be astonished when we see some of the great people who have come and gladly bowed the knee to Christ. Who have bowed down and worshipped Him and submitted to Him as Lord. And then finally, at the end there, verse 9, He introduces us to the subject of the next part of the psalm, which is the Queen. And He says, Standing there at your right hand is the Queen in gold from Ophir. And so we are introduced to the Queen and then beginning in verse 10, He will start in His psalm, He will start singing the praises of the Queen. And He will start as He urge the king to do certain things, he will urge this new queen, this bride, to do certain things. And, and of course, this will have direct application to us. But, but the thing, that, that just to, to kind of wrap things up, to think things through here, here we have this, this psalmist contemplating this great day when the Son of Man the son of David is going to be united with his people in this great wedding and we are given to just contemplate the greatness of this king. That's a good thing to do if you're going to be married to him forever. And if you're a believer, you are. So it's a good thing to stop and think about the husband. And that's what the psalmist does in these verses. Okay, next week we'll pick up verse 10.